It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. show is now in the air. There is a blizzard outside, but it's nice and warm and toasty on the Funky Writer Show, spotlighted on BadRedheadMedia.com as a top author podcast on the web today and called a total blast of a show for writers. My name is Robert Batista, and you may ask, why is the Funky Writer Show so terrific? Because I'm a writer just like my guests and know that words are the breath of life. Connect with the show on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the funky writer. This story is about what happens when our children don't turn out as expected. Just because they don't present as we want them to, does it really mean something is wrong? It takes a lot of strength to let go of expecting our children to live the life we envision. As parents, it's hard, painful to let them be free to forge their own path. But bumps in the road, doing things harder than they need to be, isn't always a bad thing. In the case of my protagonists, they eventually figure it out on their own and in their own way. These are the sage words of our guest today, author Sue Duff. Welcome, Sue Duff, to the Funky Writer Show. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. It's wonderful to be here. <laughs> it is wonderful to have you, Sue. So great having you on the Funky Writer Show. Legend has it that you had a skiing accident that messed up your knee had surgery, and was laid up during one summer. So, to combat the boredom, you started writing on a word processor. So my first question is, Sue, how did you start? What exactly was the first thing you typed on that writing machine? Well, it was funny because the first thing I did was just kind of sit down and stare at my computer for a while and (laughs) thought, how 
what what do I feel strong enough about to just kind of start doing some writing? And it really was just to combat the boredom. And uh, it, uh, to be honest, it was also a way of me um, avoiding killing my teenage son at the time. <laughs> I knew I needed to distract myself. But um, it it I just kind of was in search of some kind of superhero that had nothing to do with all the typical, you know, uh, norms, you know the all-powerful and everything else and what happens when we're supposed to be born, you know, super and powerful and it doesn't happen. And, you know, the disappointment that you're surrounded with and the, you know, lack of, um, you know, respect and just this whole sense of being born a failure in everybody's lives and eyes and how does that really affect you. And I'm sure a lot of it did come from my son at the time. You know, he he wasn't acting the way I thought he should. <laughs> As most uh, how could I kind of step back and look at it from his point of view and understand that he needed to, you know, take his own path and not do what I felt he had to do. And that's kind of where those words came from that you quoted me on earlier. Understood. It said that you were inspired to write by a radio host who was writing a series of YA novels and shared it on the air. Now, was this inspiration immediate, Sue, or did it fester for a while before you made the decision to try your hand at it? Well, I think at the at that point it was just I was intrigued that somebody who had no background whatsoever, no, you know, education or anything, what had just kind of stumbled into writing and he really did share a lot of his experience at the time. And I think the thing that affected me the most was how just really jazzed up about it he was and how it just was so energizing to listen to him and how he discovered this passion about himself. And I think those words and just the emotion and everything that I got, you know, listening to him every morning on my way to work just kind of started to hit home with me about how I felt about things and wanting to write it down. And I was kind of a closet writer, but mainly only at that time when some really prophetic, you know, things would actually happen to me. And that, and it was like, wow, I might even enjoy doing this just because. But it, you know, I think it was always one of those things like many people who kind of eventually get into writing it. You have all these um, naysaying things that you give yourself, like I don't have enough time, I'm raising a family, oh, and, you know, when I can get around to it, that would be nice. And it truly took me being laid up for a summer to start to realize that, well, you don't have any excuses, you've got the time, you're not going anywhere because you can't. So um, I just kind of started to sit down and, and yeah, eventually something, a thought inspired me enough that I started typing. It's amazing how <laughs> things like that work out. Um, so your first book, Fade to Black, book one, The Wear Chronicles, delves into the hidden world of the wear, a magical race that prevents the earth from self-destructing. Wow, fascinating stuff. Now, I think you mentioned something about possibly your son, but where did the seeds for this compelling tale germinate from? Where did you find this story? Well, I think 
it originally just started with what happens, you know, when you're supposed to be born with all these, you know, these powers and being able to accomplish so much. And my protagonist, um, Ian Black, wasn't. He was the last of their race. They're this magical race of being, you know, is used to kind of living in the background and the shadows of this changing, developing world for thousands of years. And they didn't really care all that much for at the beginning about who was on the planet as much as the energies below the planet and keeping all of that in harmony between the surface and, and what lies beneath. But as their race came into the 20th century, they started to recognize that they were dying out. And with it, little by little, the... Um, the storms, the tidal waves, all, you know, hurricanes, um, all of that, and blizzards <laughs> were all, you know, starting to um, increase in intensity and frequency. And it was as their race was dying out, so too was, you know, Mother Earth starting to kind of react to that. So they ended up um, turning to prophecies that had been in place for hundreds of years that there would eventually be one last powerful weir born to their race and he would be the savior of the earth and you know be able to be wrecked on his chest well ian was that baby that was born with that mark but he didn't develop the powers as the prophecy had expected so how his life turned out and yet how can I be what I'm supposed to be if I'm not given the tools to do that? And that is pretty much how everything just slowly evolved with my story and became just so intense for me in terms of how how he's so affected and kind of wounded without it being his fault and finding trying to find his own niche in the world and how can he make a difference um, when he falls so short of what he was supposed to be. Sue, your Where Where Chronicles series combines both fantasy and science fiction. Now, there are a lot of readers uh, who don't read any of those genres and may not know the difference between the two. Can you explain to our audience what the major differences are between those two genres and was the fusing of these genres pretty seamless for you to do? Uh, I've always been a big fan of both. In fact, that's pretty much what I cut my teeth on as a young adult was, you know, fantasy where it's a lot of make-believe in the world. Right. Um, and and there's different subgenres of that, like paranormal and, and other things, but it's pretty much just uh, pretty much, you know, this whole sense of what we can't explain. And for me, I think it was easier to combine science fiction, which is, you know, what science base there may be, to something incredible, but again, because we don't understand the science um, or it's not in our realm of current, you know, abilities, then it's considered science fiction. And for me, they're kind of one and the same. In fact, one of my favorite um, lines from my first book is, 
um, magic will always be in the world as long as we believe in what we can't explain. And uh, in a way, that's kind of what science fiction is as well. It's what could be in our dreams and in what our creative, you know, aspects are as scientists and, and engineers and everything else. But it's not possible yet. But it's not to say that if we just wait time out, you know, it, it will be in the future. I mean, a good example of that is, um, you know, the original Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry and right. all of those amazing things that he envisioned, you know, and and all and a lot of it has already come true and it's only a few decades later. Um so yeah, I think it's just time, you know, anything is possible given time. And that the only difference and another line in my first book is the difference between magic and science is time. That what we can't explain may seem magical to us, but eventually we may be able to explain it. But I hope there's always magic in the world, and all because that helps us to become, in, you know, in visionaries and creative, and you know, trying to achieve and and not understand, but just have basic belief about us. Magic and imagination. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Let there always be the two. Um, Sue, regarding fantasy and science fiction, do you tend to lean more towards one genre over the other? And if so, tell us why. Um, you know, it's funny because in every one of the novels in this Weird Chronicle series, I kind of start out with the fantasy element being primary, but it eventually... Um, kind of progresses and transforms into more of that science and science fiction. Um, the weird uh, people, because they are dying out, they fear not only for their own race um, and perpetuating that, but also for the earth and how they're, they're dying um, and extinction is affecting the planet. Um, when Ian didn't, was born with the mark of the prophecy but not the powers, they actually turned to modern-day science to try to perpetuate their own race. And uh, as we all know, it's not a good idea to uh, fool with Mother Nature. <laughs> so that's kind of the basis as the series progresses, how they kind of, for you know, all their, their efforts through the centuries of protecting Earth, they actually start to seriously affect it in the sense of trying to, you know, help themselves to um, to continue as a race. So it's I really mold the two. It's hard for me to separate them, uh, right. especially with the basis of how the novels and the story plot really does go, that uh, they kind of dabble in science, and yet they don't know everything about what causes them to be that magical. And by tinkering with it, they actually mess up with what they try to avoid. So you've written your first novel and are ready to have it published. Tell us who published it and what were the challenges, if any, in getting the story out to the world? <laughs> I think there's no way to get published any longer without a lot of major challenges. How um, true. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, you know, whether or not you go the traditional route and you 
send out hundreds of queries and um, hope that a publisher, you know, will think that your um, your type of book, your your um, genre, everything else is the hottest thing now, and that they can really uh, market you and that there'd be a big enough audience to make it worthwhile. I mean, that kind of tradition of publishing continues. It still does. There's lots of that going on. I think what's changed about publishing is there are so many choices now that there right, weren't, right. you know, even a decade or two ago. And self-publishing in this digital age and everything has become so easy and that really was the way that I chose to go. Um, I, I queried a little bit, but I probably sent out less than, you know, 11 or 12 uh, query letters or or submissions and stuff because I just wanted to know what was out there and, and how to write those because it was kind of what was purported at the time to, to kind of push for. But the more I learned about self-publishing, it just felt like it was much more comfortable for me. So I right. never really seriously tried to go the traditional route. I also um, made quite a few friends over those first few years that I was trying to be the best writer and learn to be a better writer for myself. And um, a lot of even traditionally published, very successful authors were either getting uh, dropped by their publishing houses or being expected to write a certain way, and that's not where they were growing as as authors. And um, so they would have still their, their own contracts with their publishing houses, but they um, they themselves were starting to look into trying to do self-publishing. So um, it's a lot of work. I, I mean, I'm not going to candy-coated at all. It's a lot of work to self-publish a, a novel, especially one with quality, but that was the choice that I chose to take. So, yeah, all of my novels at this point are self-published. Sue, your War Chronicle series has an underlying message about conservation. Besides the obvious, what other reasons did you choose to do this? Is saving the planet something that you are passionate about? Um, I have a lot of passions. <laughs> so I think this is just something that I think it's important that we just keep in mind that we do have effect over our own planet. And I know a lot of people that are out there, um, they're friends of mine that are very passionate and, and fanatic about, you know, conservation and stuff. I'm, I can't really count myself in there. I don't always recycle well, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And it's one of those things where I do what I can and when I'm thinking of it. But I think more than anything, it has to do with just the love of nature, Um we always went camping a lot when I was a young child, and I right. was in Girl Scouts for years, and so the <laughs> outdoors and, and animals and things like that um, was just a love that I had. Um, I, I just, I love animals. I love growing plants and flowers, and and it's just incredible what a sunset can do to me, you know, and, and just make me hold my breath, and the the shrinking planet that we have with being able to see and do research and just 
the amazing things across our world, to me is what's more important. How that, how we can help to preserve as much of that as we can is anybody's, you know, goals that they can set for themselves. I think, if anything, I just want and hope that people truly appreciate this beautiful planet that we have and do their part to try to protect it. So how do you balance this message of conservation with good storytelling? (laughs) That's always the challenge because I never, ever want to come across as being preachy. And um, as much, and again, as much as I said, I love the planet. I love the idea of conservation. I think it is everybody's duty to do that in their own way. I'm not a fanatic, and I'm not one to get up on the soapbox um, for a whole lot of reasons, but um, I'm kind of more of a quiet person that just tends to do what I can and hope that as a good example, others will kind of take that on. But I think because the weir are so focused on the planet and they have had this philosophy about caring for the earth and recognizing how the energies of the the world are in harmony and need to stay that way, I I think my, my preachiness has come more of the world building that I've created and how you know, the good guys supposedly in this story um, are all on the right side in terms of trying to take that into consideration and keeping it there at the forefront of the stories. But it's certainly not what the stories themselves are about. I think the stories are, you know, the characters and what happens to us um, trying to find our own niche in the world and stuff like that in the conservation the the lore of the weir in the, is more of the, in the background so it's just kind of subtly there the whole time let's talk about sue duff the person you were born in chicago but grew up in phoenix talk about opposite ends of the spectrum why don't you <laughs> tell us about the early transition from one to the other was it seamless for you well, it was um I was only four, four and a half when we moved to Phoenix. Um and it was really because um a sibling's health was so poor that right. the drier climate down there and so that's why my uh, parents um kind of and there was five of us um at the time and the sixth one uh I have five sisters and <laughs> and number six was born <laughs> Uh, within a year or so after we were down there in Phoenix. But, um, you know, I love the desert. I truly do. It has its own kind of beauty and simplicity right. um, and starkness. You know, there's a ha- you know an incredible way of how nature can prevail no matter what the climate and, and environments. And um, I grew up appreciating the, the desert, but, you know, my undergraduate, um, you know, degree and stuff was in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is in a huge pine forest and mountains, and they do get snow occasionally, and to, enough at least to do a little bit of uh, skiing there. But um, when I had a chance, I came up to Denver for graduate school, and I just fell in love with Colorado. It was yes, the most yes. amazing state. 
and uh, and ended up staying here after that. So I never quite go home, um, but it's still home down there, and I go home often enough down there that it uh, it still feels like home. But I do love Colorado. What books and authors inspired you in your youth, and what writers do you read for pleasure today? Uh, my pleasure is all over the place, but when I was younger, um, probably my earliest experience with truly getting into a series of novels was Nancy Drew and The right. Hardy Boys and all of that, and that's where my whole love of mysteries came from. And then when I was a little bit older and it was an easier choice for me to you know, gravitate towards something, it was uh, the fantasy and the science fiction worlds. Right. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin and Dragon Riders of Pern were one of the most inspiring and uh, just loved those those book series of hers. And then, of course, Frank Herbert and Dune and his Dune series. Um, and, you know, I just got into both that fantasy and science fiction um, probably in my early teens. Um, after that, I was a huge mystery fan. It, I, I read a little, you know, about science fiction and, and fantasies, but I started getting into a whole lot of mysteries as I, uh, in my earlier years. And I think it was because they were quicker and easier reads for me and, right. um, and all, but... You know Michael Crichton and everything else. I never quite got away from all that science fiction and and a lot of the fantasy either. But um, one of the more recent ones that I still still um, go back and read occasionally is um, you know the Dres, uh, Dresden Files and um, Jim Butcher and all. I just loved his series, and that's partly also why my main protagonist Ian. You know when he he can't live among the weird. He just feels too much like a failure. He um, tried to create what he couldn't do naturally, and he became a magician. And that, I think, was inspired by Jim Butcher's uh, series, too. Interesting. Sue, some authors can pull out a pen or laptop and write anywhere at any time, but others need a special time and place to be creative. Which one are you? Um, I've got my favorite place. I'm the most productive when I'm at home, and it's quiet. My dog is at daycare because she's a great Dane, and she tries (laughs) to crawl into my lap every time I sit down at my computer. Um, But, yeah, my my desk and my computer and uh, probably my sweats and slippers and a sweatshirt, um, that's my whole favorite little uh, ambiance here. And I do do better. Um, A lot of people are inspired, I think, by playing music in the background. Um, I'm one of those people who need to be completely quiet. Um, It just feels like I can immerse myself in my worlds a lot easier when I can do just thoroughly imagine everything, um, including, you know, just the sounds and and the smells and and whatnot. But... uh, yeah, I have no tr- uh, no trouble being creative as long as it's a quiet environment. Let's talk about the other two books in your Wear Chronicles series, Mass and Mirrors, and Slate of Hand. 
where do both of these stories take your protagonist, Ian Black, and how do you get each book in the series to stand on its own merit? Well, I think that's the hardest part for me about the book Standing Alone because they really are meant to be this huge overarching plot of a series. And so one book truly does build upon the other. I'm also not a big proponent of books repeating themselves over and over again to fill in readers. Um, One of the things that reviewers have said, though, about my books is that I don't do a lot of that. I don't, you know, just bore, you know, readers who have picked up the next book with all the details for the first several chapters of what they already know. Um, But I do have a lot of the background woven into the stories. And so whether or not you did pick up the first book, Um, or the second book, I think you can get at least enough of the story to uh, get into it and appreciate it as a standalone book. But to be honest, at least from the author point of view, there's so much that you missed if you don't pick up those first couple of books and, and truly read. And I'm also big for a lot of like huge, like, OMG kind of moments of oh my gosh I didn't I never saw that coming and uh, you're certainly going to miss a lot of that if you don't read the first two but yeah uh, Fade to Black and Masks and Mirrors and Flight of Hand um, they're all of the um, titles especially are based on um, magicians and illusionist uh, terminology and um, and they're and they're very closely, what occurs in the books is very closely associated to the title. So um, Fade to Black is you get to learn all about the main protagonist, Ian Black. You know, everything fades into him and what he's about and where he comes from. But um, I do have a core set of uh, characters that um, are primary characters. Ian doesn't stand alone. or or primarily up at the top, there's quite, you know, there's a handful of characters that are very strong, and I I do write from their different points of view, um, not just a single point of view. And um, so it's it's fun because um, there's a lot of, a lot going on, and not all the characters know what's going on, but some of them do. And so the first one, like I said, primarily focuses on Ian, but then there's a kind of background character that occurs in the first book, and the second book really focuses on what he's about and his background and how he is a main character that you probably didn't realize um, in the first book. And then in the third one, Sleight of Hand, it really all comes together uh, with it being a five-book series. The third one is kind of that that point of everything changes. And all the um, things that have led up to these characters coming together happens in the third book. Uh, But then there's such a huge shift that occurs in the third book for everybody that um, hopefully you didn't see coming and um, kind of just puts everybody in a direction of having to work together that, um, you know, all of that, that first part all led up to. Sue, you also have 
a blog on your website called A Cook's Guide to Writing. What is the genesis of this blog? Where did this inspiration come from? (laughs) Well, again, I kind of have a way of combining things that I love, like the fantasy and the science fiction elements. And I'm a huge cook. I love to cook. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and yes, I do. Um, I really am. And and it's funny because um, uh, the more I learned how to write, it just started kind of clicking with me that I could, um, you know, it just kind of identify with it, with, you know, how I learned to cook. And, you know, we all start out, you know, as cooks, not sure what we're doing in the kitchen. And that was very much me me when I, yeah, and that was very much me when I was first learning to write. You know, and here we throw something together and we think, oh, we've just created the best thing in the world. And it ends up being, um, you know, something you can't even, you know, palate and and stand to put in your mouth. and. I think everybody, all writers can identify with that with some of their first works. You know, they think, oh, I just wrote, you know, the next great American novel, and then you read it, you know, <laughs> later on, and it's like, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? <laughs> and uh, But so, yeah, the more I learned how to be a writer um, and a better writer was so, you know, simple to equate that to um, how I learned to cook. So... Yeah, I I just love the blog. It was just, you know, not to meant to be anything prophetic. Just, you know what, you know, it, writing isn't that much different than cooking. You know, we all have to add scenes to our pot. You know, you can put your basics of characters and setting and actions and and everything else into your pot, but if you don't season it with colorful characters and exotic locations or really, you know, dire drama and, and and plots, then it's going to be kind of bland and nobody's going to enjoy it that much and they're going to put it down or, or just know they don't want to be invited back to your house for dinner again. And uh, so I just started to equate that and it just was uh, something that was fun to write and it ended up being a whole lot of fun to read by other people, especially would-be writers. So uh, putting it in simple, simplistic terms helped me, but I think it has the potential of helping others that are especially just starting out. I love the cooking writing analogy. Boy, did I love that. So, Sue, let's <laughs> talk social media. I see that you're on many many social media, such as Goodreads, Twitter, and Facebook. Of the social media platforms, which one do you feel is the most beneficial for your brand, and which, in your estimation, is the best for authors? Or does each platform offer its own compensations? Oh, I think the latter of what you just said is probably truer. Um, I don't tend to write just like young adult or YA or middle grade kind of books. My books, I think, have a complicated enough world and plots often that um, as much as I have young fans, um, I'm kind of so um, all over the place. Um, The youngest fan that has connected with me was 12 years old, and it goes all the way up to, you know, well into their 60s and 70s. So I think some what 
such a wide range of individuals like my books that um, I think you have to be all over social media. Because certain age groups probably gravitate towards Facebook, at least that's the way it feels like. Others, you know, are more tweeters, and others are more Instagram and Pinterest and things like that. So because I'm so wide-ranged in um, and all, I feel like it was important for me to be all over the place, which, as you probably know too, Robert, it's really hard to stay on top of all of that. You know, as a writer, <laughs> it's right. like, where do you find the time to do it all? <laughs> and um, I'm still learning, um, you know, easier, better ways of tweeting and posting to Facebook and stuff like that. But um, I think that, uh, you know, it it's one of those things that when you're a writer, especially with, you know, self-publishing, but I even with traditional publishing, I've heard this too, um, you know, you, you just have to focus on the fact that once you are a published author, it's a business for you. It's not just pleasurable anymore. And so I always have to force myself to set aside time where I get my writing time in, my social media time in, and my self-publishing time in, and somehow um, I have to have a life on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily in that order, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, sometimes it is in that order. <laughs> <laughs> What's oh, next? What's next for Sue Duff? What other irons do you have in the fire? Well, you know, in this um, kind of passionate thing that I took on a few years ago, and it's turned into something so huge for me, um, I've met some, you know, just amazing fellow writers here in Colorado. And there was a small group of um, female speculative fiction writers, you know, the fantasy, the paranormal, the the science fiction um, kind of uh, writers group. And we kind of all just, um, you know, eventually formed a really close friendship. So we had a... Uh, a spontaneous little writers retreat that we decided to do last spring up in you know the mountains of Colorado and we got inspired being together and uh, really energizing each other and decided to form a um publishing company Wicked Ink Books and uh once a year at least maybe twice a year depending on if we catch on to some momentum we um we're publishing an anthology of short stories by each one of us on a common theme. And our first one, um, TikTok, uh, Seven Tales of Time, are, is about to hit the market here real soon. And we're so proud of it. We are all very accomplished, you know, recognized writers. And what we've put together um, uh, on our on our own and then also, you know, what we've collaborated on, we're really proud of and I think a lot of people are going to enjoy it. So that's uh, that's on Amazon right now for pre-sale, and um, the digital copy will be available March 1st, and book copies and on other you know digital sites will be available March 28th. So definitely look out for that too. We're re- very very proud of our first endeavor. <laughs> TikTok, Seven Tales of Time. <laughs> Yes, Yes, that's a winning title if there ever was one. 
So, Sue, <laughs> give out your contact information. Um, how can people follow you? I know you have a fantastic website. Uh, give out any contact information you'd like. Uh, well, the website is www.sudas, all one word, dot com. And that always has a lot of information for me about, um, you know, about my books and short stories that I've written anyway and flash fiction and just, you know, upcoming appearances and things like that. And then um, you can follow me on Twitter at SueDuff55. And my Facebook site is SueDuff-Writer. And then my Instagram is Sue Duff Author. So definitely follow me, connect with me. I'd love to hear from anyone out there, especially what they feel about my book, Good and Bad. And uh, I hope that everybody keeps me in mind the next time they go to a bookstore or get on Amazon. This has been the Funky Writer Show with me, Robert Batista. I'm at at author R. Batista on Twitter. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name, on Smashwords.com. My guest has been fantasy author and so much more, Sue Duff. Make sure you visit her fantastic website, SueDuff.com, and feast your soul. Thank you so much, Sue, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. Thank you. <laughs> it's been great. Bye now. Thank you so much, Robert. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.